Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. This is Zach. I'm here with John again this week. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, transfers and eligibility. We're going to be talking about win totals, uh, over-under projections for the upcoming season, and then diving in to talk about ourselves a little bit again, as we did last week. We're going to discuss uh, the inverse of what we talked about last week, looking at our three greatest victories we've ever enjoyed as a fan. So with that, um, turn it over to John. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing well. Excited to excited to have some more, I guess, upbeat topics this week, so we don't have to get off the get off the chat and uh, feel depressed afterwards. Certainly, uh, our first topic is eligibility, and I think really what sparked this for both of us was the recent uh, NCAA waiver for Tate Martell to start immediately at Miami. I know you had some thoughts about that, John. Yeah, it's uh, I. It was kind of a weird one because he didn't have as clean of a case, I guess, as as the others. Like everyone kind of thought Justin Fields coming from Georgia to Ohio State had had more of a case, and that one made a lot more sense. And then kind of Tate Martell coming in, no one really knew what to expect because it was just a guy wanting to leave because, well, he didn't have a good chance at starting next year because Justin Fields came came into Ohio State and he was looking for a starting spot somewhere else and you know ended up getting the waiver so he's eligible which is huge for Miami because quarterback was a was a big issue for them and I guess we don't really know how good Tate Martell is yet because he kind of ran some specialty packages for Ohio State when they maybe wanted to do some read option stuff that um, Dwayne Haskins wasn't as adept at running and as as opposed to what Stephen A. Smith thinks about Dwayne Haskins being a running quarterback he certainly was not a running quarterback no um, so uh, it'd be interesting to see if he's the real deal next year for them because that's the one thing they were really lacking they had a great defense you know Manny Diaz coming in for his first year as the head coach there um, be interesting to see if he's able to raise the bar from where they had last year they ran out three different quarterbacks last year with um Malik Rozier to start the year, Nikosi Perry also. Um, so, and I think Rozier's gone now. Jaron Williams transferred. <laughs> I think Nikosi Perry's still there, if I remember correctly, but he didn't show a whole lot last year to show that he could start. But the big issue with that isn't anything to do with Miami. It's more to do with everyone wants to call it the unofficial start, I guess, of college football free agency um, because, you know, this is the one case that didn't have as – much merit, I guess, to get the waiver granted, and the NCAA still still granted it, and he's going to be able to play next year. Yeah, there certainly wasn't the clear the clearly defined cases as we've seen in the past where players get that that immediate ability to start. I, you mentioned Justin Fields, and you know the issue with alleged racial discrimination in, in the baseball team and everything really set up that case for him. That's the reason that he was starting at Ohio State, and as you said, that's the reason Tate Martell is sort of left in the lurch again. He was, you know, a, the heir apparent looking to come in, and then this sort of falls into the lap of the Buckeyes. They get a player of Fields' caliber, and there's really nothing you can do in that situation besides try to go, you know, maximize your value. We talked about that in terms of amateurism last week, and you know, the ability possibly of players to go pro. And this is 
really not much different. If you're going to try to go pro, especially as a quarterback, teams have to have tape. (laughs) They really do. I mean, rare is the player that gets drafted as, uh, you know, an untested starter in college. You've really got to go try to do something. And as you said, this really isn't the start of transfers. It is possibly the start of players getting the ability to transfer and play immediately. And we really have to ask, is that a bad thing? I mean, think about it. The past two players that won the Heisman Trophy both transferred from the school where they first signed out of high school. Right. It could be. I mean, it could be the case again next year. Oklahoma's now going to be trotting out their third straight transfer quarterback, right? So Jalen Hurts going from Alabama to Oklahoma, they've now – they haven't had a homegrown quarterback since before Mayfield came in. So, I mean, that's kind of something that Lincoln Riley and those guys have really cornered the market on. Yeah, they've, they've obviously figured out the, the opening in the system there. And in Hurts' case, you know, he gets to start immediately because he, he, gra- he finished his undergraduate studies. But really, that's what we have to ask in the case of players like Fields and Martell as well. Any other you know, college student can transfer to another another location. I, I went to three different undergraduate locations. I started my career at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, good old Division three school, go Pioneers. And, you know, I, you know, slowly graduated up. I next transferred to Portland State, good old FBS school, go Vikings, and finished my last two years finally 13 years after I started college at the University of Oregon. So, you know, I, I slowly moved my way up the Oregon food chain there, the, you know, the state food chain in terms of schools and what level they were playing at. You know, I wasn't an athlete, but I could go to work anywhere I wanted on campus. And there was, you know, I didn't have to wait a year to go write for the campus paper or to, right. or to work in the archives or do any of the other things I got to do on campus. Yeah, I mean, I did the same thing. I started out at Jacksonville State University before I went to the University of Alabama, which, I did, I mean, I guess in football terms, that would be FCS to FBS and wouldn't have as many issues. But still, again, I was, I'm was i not obviously not a football player or anything like that. But, yeah, I could do whatever I wanted there. And, you know, not just the students, Zach, but coaches. I mean, coaches every offseason move from team to team, school to school, and they don't have to sit a year or, you know, sit on the couch, collect a not collect a paycheck or – have to sit in the skybox and not coach the team or something like that. They get to go exactly. right away. They don't only get to coach the scout team for a year. Right. Um, right. I mean, you mentioned Miami. Look at that situation. Manny was at Miami and then went to Temple and, you know, was feted as the new head coach at Temple and was supposed to be the, the real savior of the program there, the up-and-coming hopeful. And what was it, two weeks later, I think? I, I, I think it was two weeks after the ink dried on his contract, he was right back down south in Coral Gables. Yeah, right after, right after I believe, signing day too, right? Or after at least the early signing period, he yeah. already been named the coach, didn't become the official. So all those guys at Temple got locked into national letters of intent, thinking they were going to be playing for Manny Diaz, and instead they're not anymore. 
Yeah. And I mean, sometimes in state grants waivers for those kind of players to get out of those NLIs and everything. But, you know, there's no repercussions for what Diaz did. There's no repercussions for uh, former Temple head coach Jeff Collins, who left Temple to now coach at Georgia Tech. Yep. There's no there's no repercussions for any of them. And I mean, I don't understand what the difference is, because in the case of the coaches, they're doing the same thing, right? They're looking and they're leaving for better opportunities, right? So they're going from one job to the next because they think, in Jeff Collins's instance, or in you know Manny Diaz's instance, he thinks yeah. obviously Miami's a step up from Temple, so his career progresses because he now gets to be the head coach at the University yeah. of Miami instead of Temple, yeah. and it's true. Yeah. He's absolutely correct, and it's an an easy, obvious move for anybody who had the opportunity to coach either program, everyone's going to choose Miami because you it's more clout, it's more money. I mean, you got the opportunity to uh, maybe one day again compete for a national championship at Miami. And as good as Temple's been in recent years, they're not going to do that anytime soon. No, coming out so, of the American, it's just not going to happen. I mean, we've seen UCF have back-to-back perfect seasons. It's not happened. But looking at these transfers, again, there's really no justification for a player not getting the move besides that's what the NCAA says. And as we've seen already with, you know, the grant and aid ruling that we talked about last week a little bit, the NCAA is losing its clout. It's losing that authoritarian top-down control. You know, perhaps down the line it becomes an idea of whether or not conferences want to accept a, a player as eligible right away. And, you know, once the first one allows it to happen, they're all going to jump at it. Because sure. because ultimately what it comes down to is there's really no reason not to be allowing these players to play immediately. You have a finite college career. If you're burning two of those years, you know, you burn a redshirt year and then you burn your first year on the bench behind an established starter, whatever happens there, you know, that's great. You're learning. You lose a second season. Again, you're really starting to lose the opportunity to put down tape for NFL scouts and to really make your case for a professional career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, the the thing with that, though, Zach, a lot of people want to talk about it being uh, college football free agency. But a big part of, I think, Martell's ability to, to play right away is the fact that Ohio State didn't put up a fuss. You know, yeah. they didn't they didn't come out and try to block the transfer or go to the NCAA and say, hey, I don't think he should be able to play right away. And they couldn't because their hands were tied because they had just literally done the same thing yeah. with Justin Fields. Right. But you've already kind of hoped and prayed that. Fields would be eligible right away, which he is rightfully so. And for them to come back and be like, well, you know, Tate Martell should have to sit out a year. So the, the fact that they didn't fight it was a huge, I think, deal for Martell. And, you know, the fact that he had a lawyer and was able to file everything with that. Not every player has the means to hire a lawyer to be able to do anything like that. Exactly. And the fact that players are there and able to start making that case and begin setting these trends. Like, I think that's really what might be most important here is not that one player is eligible here or another one is eligible there. I mean, it's great that both Martell and Fields get to start at their respective schools and they get to do it immediately and there's not that extra year of the lost. That's great. But really, the fact is, is they're really the vanguard for what 
I'm hoping is a larger process where this is no longer a deal. If a player wants to go, a player wants to go. Especially, I mean, we see the ability to do that from, you know, the FBS to the FCS. You can transfer immediately. And yeah, obviously you're going down a division and whatever is in, you know, around that is there. But we've seen players do it. I mean, we've seen them do it from especially group of five schools going down because we've seen players from the FCS really excel at the pro level. Uh, I, I mean, tape, tape, tape is tape, right? It bears out regardless. Every year you see a, an FCS prospect shoot up draft boards because they have a really good showing at the senior bowl in Mobile or yeah. they show out at the combine or their pro day. Like this year, Nasir Adderley, who's a safety from Delaware is potentially the number one safety on everyone's draft boards this year. He's up there. If nothing else, he could be a first round. <laughs> I wrote about it this week Yeah, um, about his draft uh, profile and everything. And he's, I mean, he's a great football player. He started at Delaware, finished at Delaware, I believe, but I mean, he take bears out wherever you're going to be. So, I mean, yeah, I just well, worry, though, Zach, that everything's going to get worse again before it gets better. And the way I say that, the reason I say that is the NCAA is, I think, going to start fighting back against this transfer. They think it's an epidemic in my air quotes. Uh, it's not like there's data that backs up the fact that transfers aren't any more in the last two years than they were 10 years ago. I mean, it's it's roughly the same. People aren't just transferring to transfer or anything like that. Even if they wanted to transfer just to transfer, I mean, why couldn't they just do that? I mean, I transferred because I wanted to transfer, not because of any faux playing time or anything like that I was going to get. So I think, though, that a lot of coaches are at least silently stewing about it and maybe not so silently in some regards. So I know the NCAA is looking at some more legislation to kind of combat it and could be something they're even trying to push ahead before the beginning of the uh, 2019-2020 school year. Yeah, and you're going to get that pushback. Obviously, you mentioned it a bit earlier, the fact that Ohio State didn't fight back at all. We see it plenty of times where coaches are completely within their rights to block a player from transferring to another school within the conference or within the state or however it bears out, or, you know, they can basically set up a laundry list of however many schools they want, any schools that are on our next two years schedules, however they want to do that. They're completely within their rights. It's utterly ludicrous as we've talked about in so many different ways, because these coaches can obviously go right back to a school that, you know, might be playing, you know, a coach can go from an offensive coordinator within the conference to taking over a head coach job at another school. And they're probably much more well-versed and able to pass on trade secrets than any one player is going to be able to. Or just even head coach to head coach. I mean, look at the SEC last year. Dan Mullen jumped from Mississippi State to Florida, and Florida was on Mississippi State's schedule the very first year he was in Gainesville. You know, they had to play a game in Starkville last season. Yeah. So, I mean, that didn't, there was nothing that came up from that that prevented him from making that move because. Mississippi State had to play Florida the next season. Yeah, there was no sideline ban because he was playing against that school. You know, he wasn't forced to sit up in the press box and watch the game from up there without any say in the play calling. It's it's really a double standard. I mean, you can highlight it seven ways to Sunday. It's a double standard. 
and there's no justification beyond the NCAA says so. And the case, and really what it comes down to is with the NCAA beginning to lose its clout, with grant and aid being taken out of its hands now, with college football already, you know, on such a, a tenuous link to the NCAA because the college football playoff has nothing to do with them. Everything that happens at the FBS level where the bulk of the money is produced has n- nothing to do with them besides eligibility enforcement. And the fact is, is eligibility in terms of grant and aid's been taken out of their hands. So like you said, they're going to start to want to get, you know, use whatever clout they still have to sort of push back and show they still have some relevance in this arena. But the precedent's already been set. The problem is, is you can't, you know, pull back what's already been put there on the table. The fact is, is somebody like Tate Martell, whose entire case was that they decided he wasn't the right guy for them and decided to bring in another guy, or they decided there was a better opportunity for them than what they had, and they were within their rights to do that, and why shouldn't he be able to seek the same rights? The NCAA ruled in this case that he's within his rights to go do that, and it's really kind of like game, set, match. You know, check, yeah. checkmate. Right. There's really nothing. The NCAA cannot backtrack on that. Well, there's been a lot of backlash over it, too. Like we talked, you talked about the, the coaches and stuff um, restricting schools. And what's happened a lot recently is you'll see that initial restriction. Everybody will get up in arms on Twitter or whatever on social media and say, well, that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. The coaches start feeling the pressure and then they release the kid. Um, without any restrictions. That happened a couple years ago in Alabama with Maurice Smith, who was a cornerback for Alabama, was uh, trying to transfer to Georgia to go play for the defensive coordinator, old defensive coordinator yeah. Alabama who had recruited him to Alabama, Kirby Smart, yep. and he wanted to go over there. Nick Saban initially blocked because it was a you know an SEC school and eventually relented after a lot of public backlash. There was a kid at, at Kansas State last year or a year before last that Bill Snyder initially restricted. I can't remember the kid's name, and he eventually relented. And that's the case that ends up happening with those restrictions. They don't end up doing really anything except make the coach and the program look bad, you know? Yeah. They look bad for trying to, to restrict a kid where a kid can go to, to finish his collegiate career. Like, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and the best so part I, of- I don't. The best part is, is when, like you said, it's a coach who comes in after the person's already been recruited and started playing. So it's a guy who wasn't there when they started and they're wanting to go play with the guy who actually recruited them and they're being blocked from that. Like you cannot expose anything more hypocritical than that. It it just really gets to the root of how ridiculous it is to allow the coaches to have any say in that whatsoever to begin with. If a guy wants to transfer, a guy wants to transfer. And more often than not, it's going to be because of that coach. And the fact that the coach still holds this, you know, for whatever reason, it might not be that they have a horrible relationship, but, you know, just take the Ohio State case. It's not like Tate Martell was you know, anything but a model citizen last year with biding his time and through no fault of his own, he's going to be forced to be a bench warmer yet again, overstepped and and, and trampled on. And 
it, you know, if the coaching staff had raised a stink about it, the NCAA probably would, despite the fact that they just opened the door to this, probably would have started to clamp down and we wouldn't have this immediate start for him at, with the Canes. Yeah, I mean, the other side of the argument would be he could have stayed, I guess, and competed for the starting job at Ohio State. But in my, I, he probably didn't think he was going to get a fair shake on it anyway because with as coveted as a, of a prospect as Justin Fields was as a recruit and as a transfer, someone promised him something to get him to go to Ohio State. Like, he had, he had options. He could have gone anywhere in the country and everybody would have been thrilled to have him. Yeah. And he went somewhere like Ohio State that, Maybe not. I mean, they had a decent quarterback waiting in the wings. I mean, Tate Martell was a heavily recruited guy himself. Um, so, I mean, he didn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily know immediately he was going to start unless, you know, Ryan Day or somebody was like, oh, yeah, you're our guy. Don't worry about it. And Fields wouldn't have chosen Ohio State to begin with. He wouldn't have landed on Ohio State if it, there hadn't been some, you know, really good feeling at the very least, quote unquote, that, that the best chance was his to take over that starting spot, that he would really right. have to lose it to lose right. that Ohio start. State wasn't a school that he even really re- considered in recruiting. I a lot of people thought Penn State might make a lot of sense for him because he was initially committed to Penn State before he ever went to Georgia. And Ohio State wasn't one that he really considered there at the end. So that was one that, you know, oh. not a lot of people thought of right away. Obviously, they had the need with Dwayne Haskins turning pro. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he, he chose there for, like you said, because he thought he had a great shot at starting because someone told him that unless you come out there and just throw an interception every time you throw the ball during spring, you're going to be our guy. Exactly. And honestly, more power to him. I'm not going to fault the guy for that. Like, good on Justin Fields for finding his, you know, place in the sun. And great for Tate Martell getting that opportunity as well. I think really at the end of the day, what I take away from, you know, looking at their cases and looking at all of these cases, including the fact, like we mentioned, that both Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray started their careers at, at other schools, you know, one inside the same conference. It, there's really no reason why a, a player shouldn't get this chance. I, I certainly no. I certainly benefited as a student from getting to attend multiple institutions and if we really want to consider these players student athletes, we have to afford them that same right that a student gets of looking for opportunity wherever it can be found in all aspects of what the the matriculation is supposed to mean for a student athlete. And people want to act like football is the only thing in these kids' lives, too. And it's not. Like, it's not always what's happening on the football field that causes someone to want to transfer. Sometimes schools just aren't a good fit. These are student athletes at the end of the day, and they're going to school, whether some of them want to be there or not. Some of them really do want to be in school, really do value the degree and stuff they're going to get out of college. And, you know, sometimes they go into class and they don't feel like it's they, they fit at that school. Maybe they don't like the culture at the school. There's so many mitigating circumstances that could go into something. And everyone just boils it down to one thing. Oh, he don't think he can start. He doesn't think he can start at this school or he wants to search. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sports where someone wants to transfer. Well, I think about players at two of my favorite schools. Looking back at Jeremiah Masoli choosing to play his last year at Ole Miss after he'd taken the Ducks to a Rose Bowl. 
great. Like, good for him. He got to experience another new thing. He also started his career at City College of San Francisco playing junior college ball. He got the same experience I did out of school of getting to try different things. Awesome. It was the same thing when uh, Austin Carter Samuels with with, uh, with Wyoming ended up going to Vanderbilt as a graduate transfer. You know, like, as much as I love the Cowboys... If you get the opportunity to study at a place like Vanderbilt, by all means, take it. I'm not going to fault yeah. you for taking that opportunity. And it should in no way prevent you from getting to do every possible thing you want to do at that school while you're there. And in, up to and including football, which is supposed to be an extracurricular activity. Right. <laughs> so Yeah, it's it, extracurricular activity that turned into a full-time job that everybody thinks – you get the fans up in arms if these guys aren't focusing on football 24-7. It's absolutely absurd. <laughs> no, totally. And I think really what it comes down to for me is let them transfer. I don't know where you won't stand on it, and I'm sure you'll say it in a second, but it's as simple as that for me. Let them transfer. Like, let's not worry about waivers or anything else. If a school wants you that bad, go. It's great to be wanted by a school. If it's a good fit for you, go, and there should be nothing standing in your way. That's my last word of, on it, yeah. A lot of people wanted to use Jalen Hurts last year as the shining example of staying and kind of persevering through his circumstances, and I mean, that's great. It's great for Jalen Hurts. It's a great story. Seeing him come off the bench in the SEC championship game and leading Alabama back is one of my favorite football memories. I'll cherish that forever because – it's impossible not to love that kid. I mean, he really is a genuinely good person. He did everything right. But it, that situation worked for him. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everybody. And you can't use one singular moment or one singular person like Jalen Hurts and say, well, you know, Tate Martell should have stayed at Ohio State and battled for the job. No, you know, he did what he thought was best for him, just like Jalen did what he thought was best for him at the time. And he weighed his options, chose to stick it out, and it worked out. Is everyone going to have a fairy tale storybook ending like Jalen Hurts had at the University of Alabama? No, that doesn't happen. That's what made it so improbable. That's why everybody's talked about it for months after the fact. So, no, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Let them transfer. Let them go to school where they want to go to school. The game is not going to suffer as a result. I, I kind of figured that's where we both landed. Um, certainly let us know where you guys land out there listening. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. We'll let you guys know where to at the end of the episode. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about win totals uh, projections for the 2019 season. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in again. Thanks for listening to that first topic. We're going to move on now to, I guess, more actual football for the season because uh, – Bet Online came out with some college football win totals about 10 to 14 days ago or so at this point, but first time we've really got a chance to dive into it. So it's exciting because to me, again, the uh, it's the unofficial start to college football season for me because you can actually you can actually throw some money down on, on some bets and predict kind of how teams are going to do. Yeah, until you as a fan can lose your shirt over college football, I don't know that the season is really fully alive. I agree with you there. Yeah, and there's some pretty interesting um, over-unders for 
that I saw, one of the ones I think that was sure to garner attention right away was the fact that um, Texas A&M's over under was seven and a half. You know, they're coming off a, a 10 win season or a nine win season, I guess, in Jimbo Fisher's first season at the helm in college station. And they're over under for year two, seven and a half. I'm sure that got some Aggies riled up. I'm sure our site editor, uh, Matthew Bartlett's probably a little fired up about that, but you know, when you look at it and you actually dive into it, it's actually probably pretty fair. If you look at Texas A&M's schedule next year, I don't know if you've seen it, Zach, but it is absolutely unbelievably loaded. Like they play four teams right now that are in the preseason top ten. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a real labyrinth that they're going to have to navigate to get to the other side and get anywhere close to double digits like they did last year. Seven and a half is fair. I think betting the over probably isn't the worst thing in the world. We're going to see plenty of Aggies fans do it just with that, that optimism of a year two under Jimbo Fisher. And they're probably not completely out of line to do so. Um, but what I think what would it, worry me on that, what would worry me on that though, Zach, is that Vegas set that line knowing a lot of people were going to bet over, and they don't—they're not in the business of losing. So if it was me looking at that, I would—I would, I would want to take the under, not because I don't think Texas A&M is going to be good next season. I think they might even be better next season. But Vegas built those gigantic casinos you see for a reason. You know, they're—they're they're right more times than they're wrong. So a lot of people were going to jump on that. But I mean, oh, yeah. the SEC did, did Texas A&M no favors. They finished the season at Georgia and at LSU. I mean, back to back. Like that's, I mean, that's as tough an end of a season as you could possibly get. Yeah, yeah. Between the hedges and in Death Valley is not a fun way to finish it out. I completely agree. And um, you know, despite what Matthew might think, it it probably is a fair line. And, you know, I think generally, like you were saying, I, part of what's so much fun about these lines coming out is Vegas isn't in the business of getting it wrong. That's the reason that those giant buildings are still going up around all of these towns. Th- they do it because they get it right more often than not. And their entire business is setting the line so that people bet fairly evenly on both sides. They know where it's going to fall. And with What's that... Up? Were there- were there any lines, Zach, that, uh, that really stood out to you when you were looking through them? You know, I was um, looking through a bit. Obviously, as a smaller school guy, I think Boise State being put at 10 wins, an over-under of 10 wins, was not an unreasonable thing, even with, you know, bringing in a new quarterback. Um, you know, Brett Rippon isn't going to be starting for them anymore. He's, you know, exhausted his eligibility, but... Boise State has that ability to retool. It's just something they've done consistently for well over a decade now. That didn't seem very crazy to me. Um, yeah, it's just when you get to 10 wins, though, and you're looking at an over-under, there's just no real value there. You know what I mean? Because if you're betting over 10 wins, that means you're saying, well, there's no way they lose more than one game <laughs> like in the regular season. You know, that's what you're hoping for, right? Unless, you know, they win a couple afterwards. But, I mean, Boise State 10 wins is probably right. There's not a lot of value in the higher – uh, win totals to me. Like I, Alabama's at 11. See, I would never touch that with a thousand foot pole. No see, a, one that did interest me though, UCF is also at 10 wins, plus or minus 10. And I yeah. think just given their track record, I think basically what that is is counting on is another hurricane canceling one of their games. Because if I, I think if they finally get to play a full 12 win season, there's no way they're losing more than one game. 
I think that's pretty much a lock. Um, yeah. Both, I mean, I guess it really depends on if uh, Brandon Wimbush can come in and, and really replicate anything from last season. But, I mean, they were winning games with uh, with Mac starting after the – after the injury um, that knocked their, their starter out and yeah, he yeah. couldn't really throw the ball. He was running and stuff like that. So, I mean, they were still able to be really successful. No, the, with, yeah, the fact that they could go from from Mackenzie Milton down to Daryl Mack was, and, and still produce, still win the American championship. In, in a, you know, his second start, you know, his first start's the war on I-4. His second start is in um you know at home against memphis for take two of that you know title clash and in a game a lot of people were picking against central florida myself included because oh yeah i didn't have a lot of faith in him in the second start going against a memphis offense that had daryl henderson and a great running game and something that you yeah. know central florida really struggled to do last season was stop the run so that looked like a really tough matchup for them when you even look at the first half of that game and, you know, Henderson ran well. He ran really well in that game. Um, you know, the whole game, but especially that first half. And UCF figured it out a bit, you know, and Mac figured it out a bit. But if you're able to bring in, you know, again, talking about transfers, if you're able to bring in a player of Wimbush's caliber, you don't see as much drop-off there as you do with seeing a young player like Mac come in. Right, he's got the experience at the at the Power 5 level for Notre Dame. So, I mean, I guess the ones, uh, moving on, I guess, the ones that really stuck out to me were some second-year coach optimism mm-hmm. for next season. Um, let's see, Nebraska was at over-under was eight coming off of where they went four games last year. And the over-under yeah. was eight, I thought was, I mean, that feels high. I, I have a lot of confidence in the fact that Scott Frost is going to get his alma mater going, but even with, I mean, a, a really good young quarterback in Adrian Martinez, eight seems like a pretty steep number there. You've got uh, Tennessee over under of seven next season coming off a five and seven season. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance. Um, Jeremy Pruitt has a pretty good second year there. Tennessee has more returning production next season than any FBS or I'm sorry, any power five program next season. Uh, Tennessee has more returning production than any of them. So they've got a lot of a lot of talent coming back, a very good recruiting class coming in. So I wouldn't – I think a lot of people would probably see seven and think to go under there, but I wouldn't be surprised if they hit the over. And then Florida State and Willie Taggart's second season, the over-under was seven and a half. Yeah. Set at coming off a of five and seven season two, which I hope, honestly, for his sake, he hits the over on that because, man, they were ready to run him out of Tallahassee after, after one bad year. After, I can't imagine seven and five or worse. No, exactly. Well, I think – at least getting back to a bowl game is the minimum. And I think it's doing it with seven wins or more, obviously. Getting to eight is is possible for them. And, you know, Taggart is the kind of coach that he's always come in on a rebuild. It, it's been that way from, you know, his first jobs. You saw, There's a reason that South Florida is a decent school right now. And that's because he was there. There's a reason that, Oregon is back on a rebound, and I really think part of that was that he was there. And whatever you want to say about him, he he's a good talent evaluator in terms of bringing in coaches as well. Like you saw with Oregon, he had Jim Levitt there. He had Mario Cristobal, who's now the head coach. He can get it done, but in, in any rebuild situation, you can't count on a one-year turnaround. And I think even... 
yes, I'd love to see them hit eight wins and the kind of systemic turnaround and rebuild that they need to do. Getting to eight wins is something they might not do until they get to a bowl game, but they really do have the ability to do that. Right. I mean, people want to deride him for last season, but I mean, their offensive line was garbage last season. Every combination he threw out there was garbage. They ranked almost at the very end of the FBS and rushing offense, despite the fact that they've had two really outstanding running backs and Cam Akers and Yox Patrick running for them and, and a good returning quarterback, DeAndre Francois coming back in. He had no time to uh, do anything behind that offensive line. I mean, there's only so much you can do in football if you're getting sacked right away or your running backs getting hit by defensive linemen. I mean, even the best running backs got to have some space. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I I hate to say it about Jimbo Fisher, but he did not leave the cover, the covered full there in Tallahassee for the next guy stepping in. Obviously, whoever it would be, he didn't know it would be Willie Taggart stepping in. And it's Taggart who unfairly gets branded with the failure with it. And People forget that Florida State went 6-6 six and six the year before Taggart got there. That's just magically forgotten that they they had this, uh, what, reschedule uh, a canceled game at the end of the year in Fishers last year to even maintain the bowl straight the year before. Yep. It could have easily ended before Taggart even got there. That was not a good team in Fishers last season. It probably should have ended that last year. They got really lucky being able to scramble and get that game together to get to win six. And honestly, it, it probably should be branded on Fisher that the streak ended, even though he wasn't the coach there in Tallahassee when it happened. I think. Right. Yeah. He he definitely didn't leave the cupboard as full as as anyone would want you to believe, and I think it gets conveniently forgotten uh, that they were no good when Taggart actually got there because it's Florida State. It's the big name. You think he should be able to win, but a lot of coaches struggle in their first season. You got to adapt personnel that you didn't recruit to fit your system and get it uh get it all figured out you've got to change the culture i mean say what you want about jimbo fisher but there were some issues there culturally and stuff and i mean that's stuff that taggart's had to deal with and kind of try to get turned around i think he was given a lot of unfair criticism i mean people like to forget the first season hopefully this is something that no one thinks about five years from now because he's doing well enough i really like willie taggart as a coach he seems like a he seems like a good guy, seems like a good coach to me. I mean, even when he was at Western Kentucky before he even went to South Florida, I thought yep. he was a really, really good coach. Oh, yeah. So he, I really hope he gets it figured out. Yeah, he, he did a great job rebuilding the Hilltoppers. He did a great job with the Bulls. Um, you know, I was sad to, as a doc to see him go after one year in Eugene. Like, that was really disappointing. I thought he was a great coach to really steer the rebound. But moving on to some other teams as well, um, you know, moving to his old team, I think, and obviously I'm a bit biased, but I thought it was interesting that uh, Washington is still apparently the favorite in the Pac-12 North, according to the the over-under totals, um, with Washington being projected as a 10-win team and Oregon uh, hitting an over-under of nine wins. 
Yeah, I think, honestly, if I was making, and this is a projection without having seen really much of either team in the spring or how things are going to turn out, if I was making a projection, I would put Oregon as the favorite in that division, in my opinion, just with Justin Herbert coming back and all the talent they've got and the recruiting success Mario Cristobal's had and Eugene, I would put them as a favorite. I guess I guess Vegas has a lot of confidence in Jacob Eason as the transfer quarterback coming in to take over for Jake Browning. And to be fair, I don't think it would, it's a very small, a very low bar to improve upon what Browning did his final season. I mean, kind of a, kind of a pretty big fall from him because I remember when he was a sophomore and they went to the to the playoff, everybody was talking about him as a future number one draft pick. I mean, he yeah. looked the part too. You know, he had every tool and then it kind of just fell off a cliff it, after that. So. It just shows how much John Ross sold him, you know. Right, yeah, like, absolutely. John Ross and Dante Pettis and all those guys yeah. that had a receiver, they were really stacked and no one really knew it. Yeah, and, you know, Chico McClatcher getting injured definitely didn't help that junior year. But it, there's only so many excuses you can make. Either a quarterback is made by the talent around him or he elevates the talent that's around him. And Browning certainly proved himself to be more of the guy who's elevated by his talent rather than doing the elevating himself. Um, so yeah, honestly for me, the bigger loss for Washington is miles Gaskin losing him in the backfield is huge. You have a guy who rushed for 1300 yards for straight years. He was the first player to do it to even hit a thousand yards in four straight years in the pack 12. Yeah. It's a lot of faith in Chris Peterson too. And it's hard to argue that he's, one of the best coaches in college football. He, he obviously did a fantastic job at Boise State before moving to Washington. I mean, he he does more with less than I think a lot of coaches. Not to say Washington doesn't have a lot of talent, but Washington's not pulling in consistent top 10 recruiting classes. Uh, they're pulling more at the, the bottom part of the top 25, typically, or even a little lower yeah, in recruiting. And he's still able to elevate these teams to you know a college football playoff berth a couple of years ago uh they won the pac 12 went to the rose bowl last year yeah. i mean he's able to do that so i think a lot of that is also faith in him anyway with uh moving back to mario cristobal by the way i gotta say i'm just beyond happy to see him at a at a power five school like Oregon getting another shot i thought he was really unfairly terminated at florida international years ago uh for no real reason other than the fact they wanted to bring back what ron turner yeah and look being how the head coach well and that, was that works absolute disaster uh, i think he had done a really good job with everything he had they had gone to a bowl game like the year before oh yeah uh, which had been the first time in a while they had done that i mean florida national's back to a decent standing now with butch davis but cristobal was i thought was a good coach i, I thought oh, yeah. he was unfairly removed from that position and obviously it worked out for him you know he went to Alabama as an assistant on Nick Saban's staff went out and joined Willie Taggart at Oregon and now you know because the players loved him so much really got the opportunity at Oregon because they all went to bat for him um and really just happy to see him having success so I, I would I would like nothing more than to see him to win a Pac-12 championship playing a Rose Bowl and stuff like that certainly and you know like you said I think Oregon at nine nine wins for its over under is a really, and I, I say this with everybody, I'm sure assuming it's just Oregon bias. Uh, you know, I am a duck and also beautiful to see him in the sweet 16. Now I get yeah, that. Congratulations. Thank you. Had to gloat for a moment, but yes, <laughs> that said, throw that out there. Full disclosure. I'm a duck alumnus. There you go. 
That said, I think betting over on nine wins with them is not a bad bet at all. If they lose more than two wins with everybody they have coming back from the entire offensive line to to most of a really solid defense to, you know, obviously Herbert, you know, the biggest piece they lost was Dylan Mitchell. And that's obviously not a small piece to lose. But a cons- thousand yard receiver last year. Ex- that's definitely exactly definitely exactly. But considering everything that Washington lost and looking at the the relative value that Vegas gave them, I, I think they're underselling Oregon and, and take the over. If you want to, if you're the t- if you're the type of person, I, I, I'm mm-hmm. not going to condone this for people. But if you're the type of person who's interested in things like placing down the occasional wager, Oregon might be a good team to look at with their over-under of nine wins. I, and, got, I got two that I really like from the, from the SEC. I'm going to give you one that doesn't hurt as bad, and the second that will hurt me to say out loud. Uh, the first one, Mississippi State's over-under is eight. Give me, give me the under massively mm, there. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about first-year Joe Moorhead as the coach there, what they went – Eight and four uh, mm-hmm. in the regular season, lost the bowl game, kind of somewhat surprisingly to Iowa, um, and that was with a loaded. That was with the number number one total defense in college football last year was at Mississippi State, and they lost a lot of guys: Montez yeah. Sweat, Jonathan Abram, Oof. Jeffrey Simmons, all those guys gone. It's- Nick Fitzgerald, record-setting quarterback for them, gone. And I mean, I don't think Nick Fitzgerald was a perfect fit in Joe Moorhead's offense. No, and maybe maybe Keaton Thompson and uh, some of the other guys that are coming in might be better fits for him. But man, I eight feels steep for a team that won eight games and had more talent than they've had in a decade or more. I mean, that was that was really supposed to be the team. They really underachieved last season from what a lot of people thought like that that was supposed to be if Dan Mullen had stayed yep. potentially his best team ever yeah at Mississippi State because he had really built and developed that team and you know I, I really do feel like they underachieved again it's hard to place too much blame on Moorhead because he's coming in and trying to fit his system around a bunch of kids that he didn't recruit yep but I I think eight in the SEC West I I, I can't see it I would go I would go under. I think they'd be lucky to end up six and six yeah. in the regular season and get a bowl game. I think that would be an accomplishment. Uh, the other one that I had in mind was take the over on Auburn uh, on eight. I thought you and might I go there. I only say that. I only say it not because they're just loaded with talent coming back next season. I only say it because Gus Malzahn's on the hot seat. Everyone's doubting him. And every time that happens, they win the SEC West. So and he earns himself no another five years. Yep. Right. There's no reason to think that's not going to happen this time. I mean, he came in in 2013 was his first season. Auburn was coming off a, a three and nine season, I believe, in 2012. They yep. were a disaster in Gene Chizik's last season, and they make the freaking national championship game. Yep. You know, and then 2017, nobody had a lot of um, faith in what Auburn was going to do. No one was really picking them to win the West. They lost an early season game to LSU, and everybody wrote them off. And then they come back, finish the season by beating Georgia and Alabama, yep. and then get to the SEC championship game. You know, they ended up winning the SEC championship, but winning the West was a massive accomplishment. So to me, I I, I wouldn't bet on it because it would make me feel gross. Um, but I, for anybody else looking for a number, take the over on Auburn and thank me later. Yeah, you know, obviously, as somebody who's also rooted for the Badgers over the years, I think they're eight and a half wins. I hate to say it, but this is a team that's wasting a player like Jonathan Taylor. Um, 
And the fact that Alex Hornibrook just transferred out of there, like if we're going to continue, you know, the transfer seems to be the theme of the day. And he's another one who's no longer there, losing a starter like him for all of his ups and downs, having that kind of experience hand back there for what could have been potentially a huge season for them. I think they probably got it right at eight and a half, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them stop at eight for the regular season. As much as it kills me to say it, it's probably good to take the under there as well. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if Wisconsin, they're another one of those teams that can kind of surprise you. It wouldn't surprise me if they ended up getting the double-digit wins and playing in the Big Ten title game next year and Jonathan Taylor rushes for 2,000 yards or whatever. It really comes down to whether or not Vegas is right about Scott Frost turning things around at Nebraska, I think. Um, yeah, they have a lot of faith. Vegas has a lot of faith. Yeah. They are on the Scott Frost hype train. And obviously they haven't placed lines on all the teams yet, so it'll be interesting what they eventually think about a team like Northwestern you know, that did well last year. And Pat Fitzgerald is obviously somebody you that's really hard to bet against doing something crazy. You also have, you know, Kirk Ferentz in Iowa. That's always, you know, another one of those sort of understated teams that flies under the radar and every three to five years makes noise in a way that you didn't see coming at the beginning of the year. They could obviously do that this year so see what see what jeff brahm's gonna do in in year two at purdue right coming yeah. off of uh off of i guess not yeah coming off of uh, a six and seven win last year kind of up and down but you know what? upsetting ohio state throttling ohio state yeah. in west lafayette this year so that'll be another interesting line to look at yeah i remember watching that game from a hotel bar in uh frisco texas and just sort of having to do a double take at the screen when I first walked in and saw them up by double digits against Ohio State, and I think running in for another touchdown as I walked in. So I felt so vindicated in that game because I got I picked uh, Purdue in an upset in my weekly picks column, and I'd even written a whole thing about why Purdue had a good shot at winning that game, and everyone just gave me crap for it all week. So I was just really pleased to see that uh, on Saturday night watching Purdue not just win, but emphatically win. And I can't wait to watch Rondell Moore's sophomore season next year. He's one of my favorite players. He's probably my favorite non-Alabama player in the country. I enjoyed watching him so much. Always a joy to watch. Well, um, I think we're going to take another quick break. And once we come back, you'll get to hear about the three greatest victories we've ever gotten to experience as fans. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back, everybody. Here for our last segment of the day. As promised, John and I are going to talk about the three greatest victories that each of us have ever enjoyed as fans. Uh, Bouncing off of what we talked about last week with our three most painful losses, we figured we'd do something a little bit more joyous for the two of us this week. John, I'd love to hear what your uh, the first one on your list is. It, you know, it's kind of tough, and I'll probably have less to say. It's funny, I'll probably have less to say about my favorite wins and my favorite losses because there's just so much that sticks out when it comes to the losses more so. So I really fought with myself over it because it's kind of difficult to to really think about and how you want to categorize, I guess, your favorite wins. I think the losses are always the ones that stick out the most, and they're the obvious ones. We think, well, yeah, obviously this was the one that hurt the most. But what did you really enjoy the most? And obviously we'd love to hear from – 
everybody else, just like last week, some of you let us know about your le- your worst losses you experienced as fans. We'd love to hear about your favorite wins and the most uh, the best triumphs you've experienced as football fans. So um, for me, I, I would say number one, if I'm being honest, would probably be the 2009 SEC championship game between Alabama and Florida. This was kind of the culmination of Nick Saban's first national championship team at Alabama. It was the first time I really let it set in that, hey, we, this might be the year. This might be the year Alabama wins it all. Um, coming off of uh, a really strong 2008 season, his second year, Alabama came out of nowhere, throttled Clemson in the season opener in Atlanta. No That's one thought right. it was going to happen. Went to went to Athens in week five, I believe, and played Georgia in the infamous Georgia blackout game where the Bulldogs were number three in the country. Alabama was eighth, uh, but everyone thought Georgia was going to win. It was a night game uh, between the hedges. Everybody expected that. And Alabama came out and scored the first 31 points or so of that game and ended up winning. Uh, so that team went 12-0, and lost to Florida in the SEC championship game. What was a really, really good game? Alabama actually had the lead going into the fourth quarter and just Florida's overall depth and talent at that time just kind of won out. Now Alabama was a year away because their best players at that point were freshmen coming off of just an incredible 2008 recruiting class that featured the likes of Julio Jones and Mark Ingram and Dante Hightower, uh, all all kinds of just absolute studs. I mean, if you go down and list that class, it was unbelievable how talented it was. It was an embarrassment um, of riches. <laughs> Absolutely. So the 2019 gets to the national or gets the SEC championship game undefeated uh, off of a really thrilling win over Auburn the week before in the Iron Bowl where Greg McElroy hit Roy Upchurch on a touchdown pass out of the backfield uh, right at the end of the game, about a minute left to give Alabama a, a win that they had really labored to get to in a trail almost the entire game. So this was, uh, you know, this felt everyone was picking Florida in this game. It was Tim Tebow's senior season at Florida. Yeah. Didn't feel like there was any way that that guy wasn't going to end his college career with another national championship, right? So kind of felt that way coming in. But, I mean, from the jump, Alabama was the better team in that game. Just jumped all over Florida, ended up rolling to a 32-13 to win. I mean, the entire yeah. fourth quarter was spent – just in celebration, like it was kind of a shocking feeling like to know, oh, my God, we're going to do this. We're going to go to the national championship game. We're the entire I – mean, it never even felt like Florida had a chance to come back. I mean, I remember they – Tebow led a nice drive of like six minutes left when Alabama was up 19 and yeah. threw an interception in the end zone to yeah. Javier Arenas. And that's when it really officially set in. Like, well, that's it. We, Alabama was one. They're going to go to the – I'm going to get to see them play for a national title. And, you know, it's, it's funny, all the national championships that Alabama's won, none of those are my number one. You would think they would be getting to see that. But that kind of was the game I think I'll always remember and really point to as the one that meant the most to me getting to, getting to see it. No, and it makes total sense. I think it, at least, it, you know, two of mine are definitely the lead-up to getting that big opportunity. Um, but the first one for me, and I actually – um, I can't really rank them because being a fan of, you know, having grown up with Wisconsin, having grown up with Wyoming, and now being an alum of Oregon, I, I love all three of these teams. So really, I went chronologically with the way we talk about these today, and it sort of talks about my evolution as a fan. Um, so the first for me was the 94 Rose Bowl. 
uh, getting to see Wisconsin beat UCLA 21-16. Um, that game was great. I remember there was a guy, Matt, that I went to middle school with. His family was all UCLA alum, you know, big fans. So we got to talk trash with each sure. other the week, you know, the week's leading up to our winter break and then coming back from that game after, you know, our winter break, we knew that one of us was going to have bragging rights for basically the rest of the school year. And it ended up being Wisconsin. Um, But I think the thing that was really big about that for me is it was the first Rose Bowl that my dad and I got to share together. Um, You know, my dad was always a big Wisconsin fan. He was born in April of 1962 uh, three months after Wisconsin's previous Rose Bowl appearance when they went, you know, when they played in the first one versus two bowl game against USC and, you know, almost came back in the 42-37 thriller. You know, my dad didn't get to experience that. So for both of us, it was our first Rose Bowl ever getting to see the Badgers play. And, it, you know, it was a really phenomenal game. Brent Moss scored a couple of rushing touchdowns, was just, you know, had a killer day. And at the same time, on the opposite sideline, we were holding our breath every time J.J. Stokes would catch the ball. The guy had a 14-catch, 175, 176-yard day. Just completely went off. You know, I remember waking up the next day. Um, I think it happened on a... A Saturday because I remember waking up the next day and we didn't have to go back to school yet. So, like waking up and waking up early and watching Sports Center and them talking about what it would be like if we could have a four-team playoff because this was in the early days of the Alliance when the you know the Rose Bowls you know the Pac-10 and the Big Ten didn't send their teams to go play in these games. They weren't part of it yet, and so it was really like, what if Wisconsin could play in this game and what if, you know, UCLA had had their shot too? And just really looking at a 10-1-1 Rose Bowl team, you know, a championship team was for, you know, a kid who was 12 years old at the time. It was a total thrill. It was something I never really experienced, and especially being from Wyoming, yeah, or, you know, being from Wisconsin, but growing up in Wyoming, you don't see championships in Wyoming. Like getting to live vicariously through the Badgers, we thought was our life's thrill in terms of college football. So for my dad and I, that was just a huge, you know, I remember really getting to celebrate that with him. So that one always sticks with me. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a great story. I appreciate it. actually getting to hear that. So that actually leads into a pretty good one. I, I'm with you, though, on the whole ranking of it's really hard to do. Uh, there's one that I would probably normally talk about, but we're going to have another topic in, in coming weeks about our earliest kind of football memories. I'm going to skip that and move on to another one so I can save that story for another time. Interestingly enough, I wrote I wrote a column uh, this week. Uh, on on Sunday, the for Zach actually the Sunday morning quarterback column where I talked about a lot of different things, kind of life and my family, my dad, and Alabama football and everything. And you know, fanship is really ingrained into you when you're a kid, specifically from from your parents. I mean, we typically adopt our parents' allegiances, our parents' viewpoints, and stuff like that on life, at least until we get kind of old enough to form our own opinions. So that's kind of the case for everybody. So my, uh, 
my dad was a huge Alabama fan. So, I mean, I didn't have a choice. I grew up as a family and it was all Alabama all the time. And I mean, I remember for years, I bugged my dad about wanting to go to an Alabama game. I just wanted to go so bad. I, you know, watching on TV is one thing, getting to actually experience the atmosphere of a college football game is another. And I begged and begged and begged. And I mean, going to a football game, even back in the early 2000s, is expensive. Like, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. It's not just the tickets. You're going to, you can't take a kid to a ball game and not expect to have to buy them snacks and drinks and stuff like that because kids can't sit like adults for three hours and not drink or eat something. They got to constantly be shoving stuff in their stupid faces. So, yep. <laughs> um, we finally had the opportunity to go because my dad got free tickets at work for the season opener of the 2002 season. I'm guessing they were giving them away because this was the first year Alabama uh, of Alabama's two-year bowl ban back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and the second year, Dennis Francione was the head coach at Alabama. Um and this actually ended up being a lot better of an Alabama team than anybody expected. I think the team ended up winning 10 games and would have won the SEC West if they were eligible to do so, um, even after losing the Iron Bowl to finish that season. So we finally finally got to go to, a, to an Alabama game. Uh, it was at Legion Field back when Alabama would still play a game or so every year at Legion Field in Birmingham instead of playing on campus in Tuscaloosa. So we went, uh, and, and it is it's funny that it's in my top three because it would be such a relative innocuous game otherwise, right? It was against Middle Tennessee State, you know? Yeah. Like, who cares? Alabama versus Middle Tennessee State. One of those buy games. The team's going to come in literally to get clobbered and move on. Um, we sat – it was very end of August. I want to say it was August 31st. And it was obviously brutally hot <laughs> and metal bleachers in the end zone at Legion Field and – Legion Field is about as derelict of a stadium as you could get. It's falling apart. It's tough to actually play. I actually went to Legion Field for the 2017 Birmingham Bowl because my brother is a Texas Tech grad, and they played South Florida. Oh, yeah. And it was his only opportunity to ever really get to see Texas Tech in person again was there. And, I mean, the stadium's rough, and it was rough in 2002. Um, so it – you couldn't have told me that, though, at the time. Like, looking yeah. back, I know it. But at the time, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It wasn't even Bryant-Denny. It was at Legion Field, and we sat in the end zone and uh, couldn't see the other end of the field when the teams were down there. <laughs> but um, it was actually a close game, like, believe it or not. Like, Middle Tennessee State put up a fight. I don't know if Alabama just didn't come to play that day. And Middle Tennessee State ended up finishing that season 4-8, and eight, so it wasn't like they were even a really good um non-AQ school back then, I guess is what we would call it. Um, yeah. Uh, Alabama won 39-34. to 34. It was a, a great escape at the oh, end. I remember great. no one really could breathe a sigh of relief. And I remember this, Middle Tennessee State's quarterback, whoever it was back then, threw a pass over the middle, and Freddie Roach, an Alabama linebacker, picked it off, yeah. took it back for a touchdown uh, right at our end zone. Like, Randall, our end zone, was, like, pointing up in the stands all excited. I mean, we're going – I'm going crazy – uh, and just really excited to actually see it. So that's in that's in my at least top five-ish. I would probably put that in the top three, even with the other one that we didn't talk about, just because that was the first game I ever got to experience live and to go with, with my dad, who kind of ingrained the fanship into me from birth. That's awesome. Um, honestly, that kind of speaks to my second as well. Uh, the one I 
really wanted to speak about that was really impactful for me was the 96 border war between Wyoming and Colorado State. Um, I talked about the game immediately before this one and the game immediately after this one last week when we talked about our worst losses. And um, this was the game sandwiched in between playing rival Colorado State in Fort Collins and looked like they were going to lose a second one in a row. Um, Wyoming ends up going on a 96-yard drive to win 25-24. That was their 10th win of the season. That's what allowed them to go to the inaugural WAC championship game. But, um, you know, now that we've spoken about this, I think really the one that sticks with me even more is three years later. Uh, the border war between Wyoming and Colorado State, because that was actually my first time getting to go to War Memorial Stadium in person Um, and went with a friend of mine and his mom, who was an alum, and it was like a homecoming weekend game. They had a deal where you could get like students that anybody could buy student section tickets in the in the end zone bleachers for I think it was like five bucks. So. You know, my friend, my friend's mom had much better tickets, but she was like, go on, guys. You got your five dollar tickets going to the end zone. I had a giant foam cowboy hat, like a giant brown foam cowboy hat that I think at least five or six different people offered me money for. It wasn't something they sold at the time. I I think it was like an odd handout that they gave us from when I went to the national spelling bee, that's an entirely different story, but it was like, they gave everybody a foam, like dictionary mascot that had a cowboy hat on it. And I was like, I'm not, I, I, for no good reason other than they had money to burn. Um, so, you know, like the dictionary was long gone. That piece of foam didn't last, but I was like, I'm going to save this cowboy hat for something. I get my first chance to go to war Memorial and, oh, hell yeah, I'm wearing this cowboy hat. This thing is oversized and ridiculous, and I, I couldn't resist. And so, yeah, I, I think even somebody offered me a blank check for it. I'm guessing I'm guessing probably from a bank account that had no more than like a buck 19 in it. So whatever I'd written on it in actuality would have bounced at me. But, you know, like... Uh, somebody offered me a hundred dollar bill for it there as well. Wow. I didn't, I, I didn't take it. Obviously I was way too excited in the moment. And the fact that everybody loved my <laughs> damn hat in the end zone. And I think I, I remembered seeing myself on the news the next day. So a kid from the other side of the state getting to see himself, you know, in the, in the screen of a Wyoming Cowboys game, or at least just a giant foam hat sticking out of the, the stands in a, at a Wyoming game was really exciting. Um, they, they ended up winning that border war as well. So getting to be there in person for, for a victory in a rivalry game was huge. I mean, what a great first stadium experience. There's, you know, a great first stadium experience in any way, really. It, it just cements fanhood, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, there, there's something to, I know you're, you never lose that kind of memory, and I mean that really commemorates your fanship. You weren't hooked before going to a live game. I mean that'll do it. That'll hook you. That'll hook even the um, kind of 
middling fans who don't even care that much. I mean, I remember we took my niece and my nephew to an Alabama game two years ago when they played Texas A&M. No, when they played Ole Miss, and they were just so excited to be there. It was like an 8.30 kick, and they were asleep by the fourth quarter because it was like 62 to nothing, but whatever. They had a great time up until that point. I know that's something that they'll both remember because it was the first time they had gotten to go to a game. Totally. How about number three for you? It's tough to narrow down, man. Like, the, the losses stick out so easy. The wins oh, are yeah. just like, uh, I honestly would probably say, and it's only because it was the most improbable Alabama win I've ever witnessed, and it was recent. It was the, the 2017 College Football Playoff National Championship game between Alabama and Georgia, and really mm. two was passed at the end of the game to Devontae Smith to win. I've never... I don't know. I, I was just numb seeing it. It was like the invert. Whatever I felt during the kick six that I talked about last week, it was the exact <laughs> opposite feeling on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Because I had no thought that we were going to win that game. I mean, it was 13 to nothing, Georgia at halftime. Alabama could do nothing on offense. Well, I mean, nothing. Not even feign offense. Well, just to give you all context out there, John and I hadn't been writing on the same site for at least three years at that point, four years at that point, I was still texting him during that game and giving him grief when Georgia jumped out to that lead. Like, it was so inevitable that that was going to happen, and I was finally going to get my chance to see him feel what I'd felt in several national championship games. Of course he didn't. Of course he still kind of got that perfect record in national title games. So hey, to be fair, I felt it last year. I mean, I oh, that's true. Yes, yeah, you year. finally got it. Yeah, yeah. You and the year you you and got it again. Yeah, the, you you hadn't gotten it at the at that point. Yeah, I guess is what no, I yes at that point you yes. Thank you to clarify. You had not gotten it at that point. You've since had to deal with that heartbreak and. The you year know. before, too, though, Zach, Clemson beat Alabama. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you got both Deshaun and you got Trevor, you know, hurting yes. you. I, hadn't, I haven't experienced it non-Clemson, at least. Non-Bama. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clemson Clemson is Clemsoning no more when they play your tide. No, I, or really anybody at this point in time, like, Lord. They, um, so that game, though, it, it's... 13 to nothing at halftime. I think it's over. Like, I've never wanted to turn a game off more in my entire life, except maybe last year's national championship game by the fourth quarter. I didn't want – my dad made a comment during last year's national championship game, mad that Clemson still had their starters in, and I've never been more embarrassed in my entire life. Uh, That's not anything to do with this story. Yeah. But I I poured maybe the biggest uh, bourbon drink I've ever poured in my entire life. Like, I I got a a regular glass and filled it up pretty much to the brim at halftime, which is now my new – if things aren't going well for Alabama, it's my new superstition. I just pour a giant glass of bourbon because my thought process on it is if it works, great. If not, I probably won't care by the end of the glass. So, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, so I I did that. So I'll be honest, I was pretty, uh, pretty tipsy <laughs> by the end of that game. And I remember uh, getting into overtime. And I mean, right before overtime, Andy Papanastas missed a – a 35-yard field goal that would have won the game, and yeah. he missed it about as bad as you could possibly miss a field goal. Uh, I guess the only thing that could have made it worse is if Clemson would have, you know, caught it and returned it. Return it, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So as soon as he missed the kick, that whole feeling of, oh, we lost, 
it's over again. I mean, that's such a crazy game because, you know, that was the origin of Tua Tagovailoa as a player. Like, no one, everybody had seen him as a backup, and he had done some pretty impressive things coming off the bench. But, I mean, what a gutsy call by Nick Saban to bench a two-year starter at quarterback to bring in a freshman in the biggest game of the year. Yeah. And he rolled the dice, and it worked. Yeah. absolutely worked, and Tua threw a – Got a, I mean, took an awful sack on first down and overtime back to the 41-yard line. I think once again, oh, my God, we're going to have to settle for, for a field goal to try to tie the game from 50 yards. Yeah. This is going to go well. I wasn't even going to watch. I would have turned off and not watched the field goal attempt. No way. Of course. And then, you know, he hits Devontae Smith on the very next play from 41 yards out on a perfect pass uh, to win the game. And I'm just stunned silence that that had just happened. And I'm really thankful looking back now because if that hadn't happened, we'll be staring at three consecutive national championship game losses, yeah. which I don't think I could really deal with. I'd rather not make the playoff and go lose in the Sugar Bowl or the Cotton Bowl or wherever and not have to do it in the national title game three years in a row. So that saves that in retrospect. Yeah, definitely getting to that that highest height and not clearing the final hurdle. Um I've seen it happen twice with the Ducks, so I know how much it can hurt. And uh, so, yeah, speaking of the Ducks, that leads me into my uh, third greatest victory. It was actually the 2009 Civil War game uh, when Oregon and Oregon State were playing with a Rose Bowl berth on the line for both teams. Um, Oregon State hadn't been there since, I think, the 1960s with Terry Baker. And Oregon was looking to get there for the first time since the Gain Green team in 94. Or, you know, both teams were at the top of what was still then the Pac-10, really the power center of the conference. Oregon was really the pinnacle of the conference by that point. Chips got them running on all cylinders. But Mike Riley's Beavers team was actually up at halftime, and they come, you know, they get the ball first out of the break, and they extend the lead to nine points. And I'm sitting there at home. Uh, we actually had a group of friends over for this game, so I'm having to be somewhat on good behavior here. You know, nine points down and like 25 minutes left to go. I, I, I'll i admit, just like you, I, I had been tibbling a little bit. Um, you know, um, all my faculties were not quite there, even though I was writing for, it, uh, for a website at that time. Obviously, when you're looking at rivalry games like that, I think I had to file it the next morning, luckily. So, sure. <laughs> so I don't think anyone would have agreed to me writing that if that wasn't the case. But... I would have loved to have read it, though. I got to say, it probably would have been awesome. <laughs> the Ducks, you know, came back. And a large part of that was LaMichael James. It was the what LaMichael James and LeGarrette Blunt show. And um, what, a, what a duo in the backfield. I know. Like, you, you think about just the, like, you talk about the different teams around college football that have had just stud running backs over the years. Oregon really, in the past decade, they have a, a legit, legitimate case for calling themselves running back you just with 
James and Blunt and Kenya and Barner. Um, you know, you look mm -hmm. at Royce Freeman more recently. These guys are just, I mean, you can even go back earlier in the decade with Maurice Morris and Ontario Smith. And uh, I, when Michael James ended with three touchdowns, uh, LeGarrette Blunt had another touchdown on the ground. Um, I think Blunt in a backup role had like 50 yards and James ran for 160, 166, something like that. Like, had a huge game. But the Ducks ended up winning this game. Close call. Uh, earned their first Rose Bowl berth since I really started following them. And as somebody who grew up, as I said earlier, you know, following the Rose Bowl from the Big Ten side, it was really interesting seeing it from the other side of it. Especially because at the time I was in Eugene, living in, in town, working on campus, um, you know, some of my wife's family was getting to experience that Rose Bowl. You know, all of the gear coming out for Christmas time, getting ready for that, was getting ready for that game. You know, my wife's um, uncle and second cousin got to go to that game. They ended up driving down to Pasadena. I almost glommed on and went with them. So maybe that game would have been my, you know, check mark on this list rather than the Civil War itself. And I got to go to it. But, you know, there was just something about the, the Civil War meaning so much. We talk, we talk about the significance of rivalries in any instance. But I think it's really when both teams have huge stakes on the line like that, that they mean so much more. So for me, that was really the the pinnacle moment. Yeah, I remember that Civil War. Great, great game. That used to be such a fun rivalry. It'd be nice if Oregon State didn't suck every year and it would be a fun rivalry again. <laughs> well, and even when Oregon State's been down, I mean, you think even just a couple of years ago when Oregon earned their spot in the inaugural college football playoff, they got their after barely squeaking by the Beavers at the end of the season. Uh, you know, no matter where those two teams are, whether it's, you know, when they played that infamous nine, 1983 Toilet Bowl or when they're both at the, uh, you know, the chance to go to the Rose Bowl winner-take-all, rivalries are rivalries. And so right. I I think that's why the greatest, you know, two of those three greatest victories for me fall down to two of the big, you know, the two biggest rivalry games for two of the three teams I've followed. And, yeah, and maybe right. if, and one of mine one of mine would be would be a, a rivalry game, but we'll get there. Oh, certainly. Well, on that note, thank you to all of you for listening out there. We appreciate everybody listening, and if you guys have any topic ideas that you want us to tackle, would be more than willing to to take feedback on that. Uh, we we can pretty much debate and talk about anything you'd like. So any any kind of topics you that come up that you'd be interested to hear our thoughts on, shoot us a line on Twitter or uh, in a comment on, on the post for the podcast, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss it. Thanks again. Have a wonderful rest of your weeks. We'll talk to you again next Wednesday.